to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and joining me, of course, is my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, it seems like a while ago since we talked, but you know, maybe it's just the tumult of the last uh, the last week or two. Yes, um, I, I was thinking that. I think we're being much more leisurely this season, aren't we? We're taking our time. <laughs> we're not succumbing to the kind of the frenetic demands of the podcast sphere. So um, yeah, which feels nice. It feels like we've got a lot to talk about each time we. We touch base. So. Either that or all, we're just like, <laughs> you know, we're like a, um, what is it, a duck with the, all calm on top, but the legs are going underneath with the, the rest of uh, the rest of life uh, taking over. Probably more accurate. Yeah, yes, no, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an interesting point, really, in terms of where the London Film Festival sits. I mean, this is uh, the, the first, just, you know, just so I do the proper podcast thing and, and say what the episode is about. This is a mid-London um, Film Festival episode, and we're going to do a longer one maybe next week at the end of the festival but it's just really me and you wanted to catch up with a few things that we'd seen you remotely using the, their online system and i've seen a few things remotely and a few things in london but it's interesting just in terms of the where london film festival sits in the calendar it, it, it really has been difficult to sort of fit in as much as i would like and on the bonus episode sort of previewing all the films I wanted to see and it's like I've got nowhere near <laughs> most of those you know absolutely yeah well most of the ones I wanted to see weren't on the player anyway it's a really interesting uh selection on the player uh, or in terms of not the player but the um the, the press platform for for online screeners um, sure and yeah you're absolutely right it's kind of it's slap bang in the middle of the first half of term which is always absolute chaos um even more chaos than the second half of term so it's in that festival season where there's a lot going on but it's hard to it's hard to sit down and really sort of yeah work through the program in the way we might necessarily like which is why berlin's so great because it's it falls at just the right time where we can go um and then bring that stuff back into work in a way so yes yeah, um but it's been nice to dip in and out i have to say i've actually felt like i've been at the festival because i'm oh, that's good yeah because i'm catching films in between teaching sessions and you know like because there's a time limit on them you have to really sort of catch them and yeah, it's 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 actually been nice to see what's on and when and, and sort of catch it. So it's weirdly worked out. Yeah, sort of to give me a bit of a sense of of a buzz from it, which has been nice. Yeah, I mean, what have you made of the of the online program? I.e., what's available? I mean, it's just nowhere near you know, what what is actually available live. So, I mean, it, it's probably not even a third, maybe a, a quarter, if that, of the, the main programme. And I don't know, I'm sort of in two minds about it because, I, I mean, being in London and actually talking to a few film critics who are going to screenings, there is just a lot of uh, annoyance at the way that the screenings have been structured, like two smaller screening rooms, people queuing for two hours to try and get into some of the main festival highlights. It seems to be a year-on-year -year thing where there is there are these issues around the London Film Festival, but I, you know I, I haven't experienced it in that way because I've just been able, I have been able to get into everything I've gone to, and then I've been able to catch up online. I mean, it seems to me that it's quite a good system actually of watching, but it is very specific. You've got to watch at a certain time, and and you know you can get cut off halfway through if your time runs out and what have you. Yeah, I I missed the last five minutes of one film because the six-hour window ended with five minutes to go. Um, so I didn't realize it was a strict six hour window, which is, you know, I think it's one thing if you're at home and you're covering it for press, you know, because you can. But literally, I was I watched the first half of that film in, before some tutorials and then tried right. to catch the second half after some tutorials. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just sort of got. So it's that's interesting. I think what I find a bit frustrating is that it's 
last year had such great gains in terms of online stuff and there was this big idea that it was going to be out in the regions and and a greater online kind of commitment because it is you know the largest film festival in the uk it's the preeminent festival in england you know um and there's nothing remotely comparable in terms of film festivals in 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 england throughout the rest of the year so although it is the london festival it's kind of the england film festival um and i just i just kind of was hoping that there'd be a, a more of a push to be inclusive in terms of the cost and, and and the distance and stuff like that and it is a shame that you know none of the big big films are there in terms of the the, the prestige works yeah um, yeah yeah but uh but you know that has kind of led me to a really interesting set of films um having seen them including including one film which i think is an absolute stone cold masterpiece so that's been yeah that's been really good but I'm not going to talk about that today. I'll talk about that next time. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that next time. In fact, we're going to save some of the big stuff. So um, things like Sorrentino's Hand of God, I want to talk about uh, Julia Decornau's um, Titane, which I'm hoping we can speak to Savina about, um, who hopefully is coming on the show on Saturday. Um, because it's interesting, she's seen all of those films and has a slightly different take to me on them. So it's uh, that, that's always good. Absolutely. And, and yeah, that there's... There was a film that I actually saw in the auditorium at the ICA, actually, that I want to talk about, which yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a Stone Cold Masterpiece, but it, it was one of those that I didn't know what it was. And I got, because you get, with the press accreditation, you get balloting opportunities. So you can go into the, the non-press screenings if you're lucky enough to be given a ticket through this sort of online balloting system. So I went along to that and I actually quite enjoyed it. I thought it was an interesting piece of work. And then I've watched a couple of things online as well. So uh, why don't you kick us off with... Um, with something, you know, something that you've enjoyed from the online list? Well, the first feature I watched was Mark Cousins' uh, documentary about the producer Jeremy Thomas, uh, The right. Storms of Jeremy Thomas, uh, which was just a lovely way to start. Um, you know, it's it's a very Cousins piece of work, but it is, it is fascinating. And while it leans very kind of romantically on the idea of, you know, a kind of, a kind of producer that there isn't really coming through or anymore, you know, it's... It is kind of it's just a fantastic portrait of of someone who was absolutely devoted to cinema and has spent their life devoted to yeah really pushing the boundaries of what cinema can be in terms of the, the filmmakers that that he supported and it's just yeah a lovely kind of road movie with where Mark Cousins take, follows Jeremy Thomas or sort of goes on a on a car ride with Jeremy Thomas to Cannes. All right, um, so. Kind of yeah, it touches on his life, lots of interviews, and then they just kind of get in the car and and go. And off they go. And off they go, and then they get to Cannes, and it's it's actually a really nice insight into Cannes and how you know what what it's like to be on the ground as a as a producer in Cannes rather than you know a critic or rather you know it's like it's it's yeah it's it's just wonderful, um, really yeah a really lovely documentary which I think is going to be out very very soon, so well worth checking out. Right, and does that sort of sit in with with Cousins' previous stuff um, in terms of you know very being very sort of referential to to cinema in a wider sense, and but then also kind of like um, you know using that as a springboard for kind of like a personal sort of journey and odyssey and and this kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's there's a little bit of that. It's probably the least in terms of the in terms of Cousins himself, but it's certainly springboard and certainly some very strange you know associations that he sort of gotcha. pulls together and he uses the you know the idea of storms 
um, as the kind of central motif, which, you know, is it, it feels very cousins because I think it would in the moment and sort of very instinctively it works beautifully. But you wonder if it would bear up under scrutiny. Um, but yeah, his his use of kind of Thomas's work in the as clips and as kind of as context, but also the cinema that that Jeremy Thomas loved and, and sort of admires is, is really well done. Um, and another great a great celebration of cinema. So yeah, great. Okay, so um, yeah, always interesting to 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 check out Mark Cousins's work. Um, so the first film I'm going to talk about is called Memory Box, and this is a, a Canadian Lebanese French drama but it's kind of like an autobiographical dramatization based on um kind of notes and diaries and tapes that are real so there's a real sort of blurring of the line of documentary and and sort of dramatization and also it, it it kind of feels like a reconstruction you know this this sort of theme i keep kind of coming up against i keep seeing these these films that seem to be almost like reconstructions. It does have a little bit of that in terms of the, the mood of it when I was watching, but it's directed by a, a, a team called um, Joanna Haji Thomas and Khalil Jorije. And they are, Le- you know, Le- they're of Lebanese, def- well, they are Lebanese, but then they moved to the West, moved to Canada, Canada hence the, hence the, the sort of production background. And it had a, a it's, it's, premiere at Berlin it was actually in competition there so you know it's obviously a highly thought of film and essentially it's the story of a single mother Maya who lives in Montreal with her teenage daughter Alex and and with her mother as well so there's a sort of very familial but very uh, female driven sort of sense of connection between these these three main protagonists and um, one evening, on, on Christmas Eve, actually, uh, Maya receives an unex- unexpected delivery, which is a box that is full of tapes and notebooks and photos that um, were sent to her best friend, who she w- has been out of contact with for, for many, many years. And it's their kind of dialogue with each other um, in 1980s Beirut during the during the war, right? So at the, at the beginning, Maya kind of doesn't open this box and sort of you know stores it down in the in the in the uh in the garage or whatever in the cellar and and you know clearly there's a lot of repressed memories that are in there that she doesn't want to confront but then her teenage daughter who is exactly the same age as when she was writing these diaries back in back in the day the 80s obviously is very curious and i think there's a sort of there's an implication that she doesn't really feel like she knows her mother enough. Or there's that sense of the child always wants to know what their parent was like growing up. You know what I mean? So she goes in and starts to, goes into this box and starts to take pictures of the pictures and kind of pinches the tapes and and record, you know, and, and sort of gets them downloaded onto her laptop. So it kind of digitizes, it starts to digitize everything. Um and it's really interesting because the, the part of the film is very much about the idea of what is our identity? What, what are our secret histories? What do they tell us about ourselves? And this is very much related to, um, obviously, the war in Beirut. And they, they, there is intercutting scenes with documentary f- um, footage, which comes from the other director. So it's a kind of splicing of these different materials. But then 
the other part is about this notion of m memory and how we store memories and the differences between sort of analog and digital technologies um, and how we use that to construct our, our sense of self. You know, there's certain scenes in which they use almost a kind of collage visual effects to, to animate the, the notebooks and what have you and the photographs. So it's really nicely done in that way. And then there's sort of um, a recreation of the past as well. So there's a lot going on in this film in terms of the different modes of, of sort of cinematic representation it uses. So it's a really interesting watch because of all of these things it's trying to do. And at the, and at the end, to be honest, there is a kind of payoff in terms of the, the mother figure, you know, sort of articulating what her past was like to her daughter, as you can imagine, happens through the movie. So just on, a, on, a, on both a, a kind of emotional level and a technical level, there's... It's interesting to engage with as a film. So yeah, I, 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 that's the my favourite film in terms of the kind of smaller n named films that I've seen so far. Cool. Um, have you seen uh, Sophie Ronvari's short Still Processing? I don't think I have, no. It's on movie. It came out earlier this year and it's about 17 minutes. It's brilliant, but it's very similar in terms of... It, that's a family trauma, but it's about going through the, the archive and that intergeneration. Yeah, so that'd be a, that sounds like a really nice companion piece to that film, which, which I love still processing. So yeah, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm right on my street, I think, in terms of that that approach. Yeah, and I think it's probably the kind of movie that that, that will pop up, a movie that will pop up on movie in the next yeah, yeah. you know year or so. It's, it's that got that kind of vibe about it. Great, cool. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to mention. I'm going to quickly mention one, and then because and, I think uh, I want to sort of log it. I don't know where else to sort of talk about. It. It's called Lutsu, which is a Maltese film. A Lutsu is a small Maltese fishing boat, and it's a drama about, yeah, kind of a lone fisherman sort of coming to the realisation that he can't fish anymore, really, in terms of the economics of, of fishing in the EU and stuff like that. And it was, it was, one, it was a really weird film because I was like, it was fine in the moment. You know, I was like, this is yeah, fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then the more I thought about it last night, the more it kind of annoyed me <laughs> because I just thought that the characters were really, really weak. And it was it made me think, oh, is this... And it sounds horrible, but has it been has it been programmed? Because it's a Maltese film, and it's it's not a big cinema country in terms of it's it's you know it doesn't make many films because it feels like it's it wouldn't necessarily have got in if it was a film from another country with a with a bigger cinema. Right? Um, do you know what I mean? It's like it's very very okay, and just the characters are so annoying. Like it's obviously a hard life, but the the way they sort of manoeuvre the characters through the story to the things that they have to do in order to survive, I just felt was really, really, really clunky. Um, but it was, you know, again, it was like I had I had the time. There was nothing else on. So I just kind of whacked it on the player. And yeah, it was, it sort of passed the time. So um, if you're interested in multi-cinema, then that's that should be right. That's the, the one street. for you. But the one I really loved that was a kind of a, a film that I'd, I'd only heard very, very little about is Azor. Okay, uh, which is an Argentinian film, um, and I'd seen a couple of people on Twitter who I think had seen it quite early had sort of said it was it was great. And I love a bit of Argentinian cinema, anyway. And this is yeah, sort of set in the nineteen eighties with the yeah kind of the very oppressive state regime, and it's a drama about a banker who goes to a Swiss banker, sort of private Swiss banker who goes to Buenos Aires to try and find out what's happened to his partner in the bank who's disappeared. Um, sure. And it's it's an absolutely sublime piece of work. Like, it's just, it's so slick and so gripping. It is it is like the third man 
meets the secret in their eyes like it's it's just <laughs> that's a great tagline yeah and it, it, you know it's just like he's there and that there's everyone's talking about this person his partner who no one knows what's happened to him and mm. the kind of escapades it was very harry limey but then also the reason that he he's disappeared and like what he was kind of working on is is kind of deeply embedded in the state corruption um and then that's what's really interesting is like halfway through it's it's it morphs into like eyes wide shut you know this banker who's kind of trying to retain the business rather than anything right. else slowly gets intrigued and corrupted by the the secret societies of of Buenos Aires in terms of who actually has the power in in the state. Sure. Absolutely great, you know, and it's oh, fantastic. It's only like an hour and forty minutes, but it's absolutely brilliant and really great. Interesting. He takes his wife and their relationship in sort of you know sort of a nineteen eighties sort of context is really fascinating in terms of very Kidman and Cruz in terms of where's the power lie um you know in the, in that relationship and yeah just that is one that i think is going to be high on my list for the end of the year i just absolutely loved it great fantastic so yeah i'll mention a, a couple more first of all i mean maybe it's something that's kind of comparable not 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 in terms of theme or, or subject matter but in terms of the way you felt about it um was leave no traces um and this is not to be confused with leave no trace the, the Granite movie. Uh, so th- this is a Polish, very austere, formal um, 1980s set drama um, directed by Jan Matsuzinski. I think I've pronounced that okay. Um, and it's a true story. So it's a, 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 um, a story of a teenager, Gregorz Przymik, who was beaten to death by militia after kind of being arrested on a, on a nothing charge. And it follows the story of Jurek, who is his best friend, who was basically arrested at the same time and witnessed this this beating. And it's just one of those movies that is about, it becomes about the inner machinations of totalitarian regimes and politics. And when I looked at it, I realized it was two hours and 40 minutes long. And I thought this this could be really hard work. And in, in some ways it kind of is because it's very serious. It's very, it feels like the director has sort of made this as a kind of catharsis for national, you know, getting in touch with kind of national history and sort of saying this is what Poland was like in the, you know, because it's, there's a lot of, Jurek is, is um, kind of having an affair with this older woman who's high up in, in solidarity. So it's like during the, the formation of solidarity before that political movement kind of gained power, and, you know, and had the revolution that it did. But it never comes out really of that 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 sort of mode of being very serious, and this is a serious subject, and we have to look at it in this very kind of objective or, or serious light. And it's a kind of the interesting parts is when you see the the in, you know the inner workings of the party sort of brushing up against each other, and there's people in individual departments kind of trying to take over and then trying to get rid of responsibility, and so all of that kind of real politicking is in, is always interesting stuff, but it. It doesn't have the the kind of in-your-face punkiness of, say, something like Bader-Meinhof Com- Complex, or it doesn't have the kind of dark menace of the lives of others. Um, so it's, it, it is really that kind of sense of here is a national cinema making a very important piece of work, or it wants to be seen that way, ec- epic piece of work for its own its own sense of history, I think, in terms of being a national cinema product, perhaps. That's what it, that's what it reads to me, anyway. Yeah, interesting, because I think that, that feels like it's got a very almost a very similar intent to Azor, you know, in terms of documenting a very dark 
part of a, of a nation's past and probably speaking in some way to the present, you know, using the past to speak to the present in terms of the, the situation. But yeah, Azul definitely takes the kind of almost Patricia Highsmith route of genre as opposed to, yeah, like you say, a very serious kind of Eastern European art house uh, sort of didactic approach, but yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what what your um, colleague um, Anna Misiak made, made would make of a film like this. You know yeah, what I mean? Because yeah. she's obviously done European art cinema and and kind of archives of history through through film. It's a kind of it, it's a film I think that wants to sort of be positioned seriously in in a in in taking a snapshot of of history, but telling it through a particular story. And she's Polish as well, so yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, interesting stuff. It's just been really nice, hasn't it? Because it's just been, it's, you know, these are films that, like, say, would, wouldn't necessarily be on our radar in this way. So yeah. it's nice just hearing you sort of talk about the these films that I've never heard of, you know, just, um, yeah, sort of seeing how interesting world cinema is at the moment. You know, and, and, and this was a sort of a, a sort of serendipitous moment because I just kind of, like, was working on Sunday, Sunday morning I was working, and it got to the point where it's like, right, okay, I want to have the rest of the afternoon off. And like, what can I put on? It's two o'clock. And this was the only movie that was available at that point on the system. So I didn't really have a choice. And I wanted to watch another thing, another festival film. So that was it. And I probably wouldn't have watched this under any other circumstances. So it's it's kind of interesting how, you know, whether it's online or offline, these these sort of certain conditions t- take you into films in a in a particular in a particular moment, which can be really fruitful, even if they're not you know masterpieces as as not all films are, of course. That that's where it feels like a festival, isn't it? You know, like you say, like as much as the Maltese film has grated on me over time, like I'm still really glad I saw it. Sure, you know, um, and it was yeah, like you say, it was there, and the chance to see something then was was great. You know, oh, this mm. I'll just put this on. The the last film I, I wanted to mention was one I saw just just the other night on uh, Monday, which was Citizen Ash. Okay, so this nice. is right up my sort of sports documentary uh, obsession at, at the moment. Um, yeah, if I ever get round to thinking about writing a book on sports documentaries, this would be another one that would be in there. And again, it's tennis as well, so it's kind of my the sport that I kind of play the most now. Um, but yeah, you know that 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 thing of not self consciously, but but definitely kind of a film that I think is taking the moment of interest in um, black sports stars and um, how the the emergence of the, the familiar names in any given sport in the sort of post-war era has gone on to influence where we are today in terms of, you know, um, athletics and and uh, black identity and politics and all of that, all of that kind of thing. And I think this is, this is particularly interesting as well because it sort of alludes to the idea of how Arthur Ashe managed to survive within the tennis fraternity, which is, you know, probably along with golf, the most, the most lily white, as it says in the, uh, in, in the movie, the most lily white organization in sports, you know, and the idea of sort of country clubs in America and blue bloods and, you know, who are, who are sort of controlling power um, and then going off to play tennis after, after they've done their politics and sort of the way that Arthur Ashe sort of fit into that fraternity and there's very much the sort of a little bit i mean I, f- I felt there was a little bit of a connection in terms of the way that the documentary about oj simpson sort of characterized this idea of a a black sports star who's acceptable to whites because he conforms to all of the the kind of decorum and um, all of the rules and regulations and doesn't stir the pot but then how ash kind of as he goes through his career get, gets an awakening 
um, around his political identity. And this is very much, I think, in relationship to his brother who went to Vietnam. And basically, I mean, this was, I, I didn't know this. The key aspect of the story was that his brother signed up for a second tour in Vietnam so that Arthur Ashe didn't have to go because there was this rule at the time that brothers, because of what had happened in, in the world wars, two brothers couldn't serve in, in the military at the same time in America. So they had this rule. So basically, you know, Arthur Ashe was in university and was looking like he was going to be able to go pro. And then it came up that his brother was coming home from his first tour. And even Arthur Ashe went and did the whole basic training, you know, and, you know, it was kind of not cut out at all for being uh, in the army. So his brother just sort of said, no, you're going to go and continue your, you know, your studies. And then, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I will go back to I will go back to Vietnam so you don't have to go. And it's really interesting then because it, I don't it doesn't say this explicitly, but you kind of then have to say, well, who's the real hero here? You know what I mean? It's like, and I'm not saying hero in terms of, you know, he's a soldier because he's a hero, but a hero and sort of saying, I am going to make this sacrifice. I could literally die just so you can become who, who you became in terms of a pro tennis player and then a spokesman for civil rights as he, as he got later on in his career. And then at the end, it's really, really funny sort of seeing him has, as the Davis Cup captain, this really sort of calm persona who does like to play by the rules and has a sort of, oh, yeah, almost a sort of gentrified demeanor trying to captain the American Davis Cup team with John McEnroe in it, you know what I mean? And it's just like this clash of personalities is really entertaining. And yeah, it doesn't do anything in terms stylistically that is out of this world, you know what I mean? Cinematically, it is fairly, fairly straightforward, but there are sort of interesting archival F um, footage and and on audio of of Arthur Ashe sort of talking about his position and his relationship to civil rights and this kind of stuff and and of course all of the all of the the, the sort of old tennis stuff of him playing Jimmy, Jimmy Connors is is interesting but it's very much that the tennis is kind of like just the the canvas upon which the story of Ashe as a, as a man is 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 told really cool. Awesome. So, um, yeah, I think that'll just about do it. Um, just a quick, as we say, just a quick check-in. A mini-sode. Indeed. Have you got anything lined up for the next couple of days in, in particular? I know, you, I know you're going to see Flea, which I really want you to see, so we can both ha have, have seen that. And I think it's worth a, a good discussion, that film. Yes. Um, so Flea is on there. Um, I'm hoping that the Shyama is, is on, still on there, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, I think, it, I think it is. I think it is. So we could both watch that and talk about that. Yeah, I do want to see that. I want to see Bull, the new Paul Andrew Williams with Neil Maskell. Yeah, and then tomorrow on the BFI play, I'm going to rent the um, the Panahi's Sons. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it looks great. I hit the road, I think. It's yeah, called, yeah. Um, which is supposed to be fab. So I really want to see that. Um, so that Oh, that's tonight, actually. Wednesday, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so I'm seeing that tonight. So... I will try and see that as well. Now you've reminded me because I said I, I talked about Panahi in the in the uh, um, in, you know in the in the preview episode. Indeed. So uh, that'd be one I can actually catch. Yeah, cool. Yeah, looking forward to it. And then yeah, kind of catching up with the other things that I've seen so far. It looked really interesting stuff as well. So very happy, very happy viewing. So yeah, hope you've enjoyed this uh, little break into halfway through the festival and we will be back with you probably middle of next week, a few days after the festival is finished and we can talk about, you know, sort of what's won and what hasn't in relationship to what we've seen, of course. But yeah, we hope you've enjoyed that. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.